friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On November 9th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Holland versus Burkin, a case challenging the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Joining us to discuss this important case are two of America's leading scholars on the important constitutional issues that it raises. Timothy Sandifer is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute, Scharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation, and holds the Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He submitted an amicus brief on behalf of Texas and the Burkine family. Timothy, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. And Elizabeth Reese is an Assistant Professor of Law at Stanford University a scholar of tribal and federal Indian law, and a citizen of Nambe Pueblo. Elizabeth, it's an honor to have you on We the People. Kunda, thank you so much for having me. Let's begin with the stakes of the case. Timothy, why is this case important and what are the constitutional issues that it raises? Well, it, it raises a great many constitutional issues. The reason this case is important is because this is a, a, a 45 or so year old federal law that sets a series of rules and standards that states are required to comply with in cases involving abuse, neglect, foster care, or adoption for what the statute calls Indian children throughout the United States. That definition of Indian children is part of why this case is so controversial, because it does not just apply to tribal members, but applies also to children who are eligible for membership in an Indian tribe. And so, of course, one of the questions in the case is whether that crosses the line into a race-based distinction or not. But because this law restricts the ability of states to protect children who are being threatened or abused, that raises obviously very serious life and death stakes for children across the nation who qualify as Indian under the statute. Elizabeth, how would you describe the stakes of the case and why it's important? So this case is incredibly important uh, for what I'd say are two reasons. First, the Indian Child Welfare Act is a statute that I would describe as, you know, very crucial to Indian country and tribal sovereignty and survival, but also that's beloved by Indian country um, and the tribes that make that up because it has done such incredible work to combat the horrible practice of taking Native American children away from their families um, and placing them either in boarding schools or in non-Indian homes as a part of the federal government's legacy of encouraging the assimilation of Native people and the erasure of their governments. Um, I've, I've heard it described as um, an anti-genocide law, and I think that's really on point, that this law has done crucial work to protect Native people and tribal sovereignty over the years. Um, but the other reason why it's so important is because some of the questions that are raised in this case actually have much broader implications for the rest of federal Indian law. And so I, I often describe this as an attack on some of the foundational pillars of federal Indian law, of con Congress's authority in Indian affairs, um, and tribal sovereignty itself. And so if one of these pillars goes down, it could have um, implications for the entire rest of the house. And there's a lot of really important things in, in that house that we describe as federal Indian law. Well, let's explore those pillars and dive into the first big constitutional question that both of you have identified, which is whether or not uh, the law in question is rationally related to legitimate governmental interests and consistent with the Equal Protection Clause. And there was vigorous discussion in oral argument about whether or not the law represents a racial classification that would trigger the highest scrutiny of equal protection or, or whether it's in fact a political classification that doesn't trigger that kind of strict scrutiny. Timothy, describe the arguments of the challengers who say that the law violates the Equal Protection Clause and why. Yeah, so this begins with a case called Morton versus Mankari, which is a Supreme Court case from the 70s that said that uh, it involved employment preferences at the Bureau of Indian Affairs for members of tribes. And the, that was challenged as being an unconstitutional racial classification, and the Supreme Court said it wasn't. 
because it said that tribal membership is a is a political thing. A, a, a tribe is a political entity, and and your your citizenship in a tribe is more of a political affiliation, and therefore it doesn't cross the line into a, a racial classification, which courts treat with a great deal of skepticism. Um, and so the question in the ICWA case is whether this falls within that category or if instead it constitutes a, a prohibited racial classification. Uh, and the answer is that ICWA violates the, the equal protection requirement and is a race-based statute because it's triggered entirely by biological rather than political or social or cultural factors. Under ICWA, a child is deemed to be Indian based on biological eligibility for tribal membership, and the child also has to have a biological parent who is a tribal member. So an example that I like to give is uh, William Holland Thomas, who is a, a white man who was adopted by the Cherokee and became a chief of the Cherokee tribe in the 19th century. Under this law, he would not qualify as Indian because he lacks the biological right requirements for becoming a member of the tribe. In um, the, the now classic novel, The Round House by Louise Erdrich, there's a character named Linda Wishcob who is uh, a white girl who gets adopted at a very early age by a native family and is raised as a member of the Ojibwe tribe. She would not qualify as Indian under the statute because she was uh, legally adopted by tribal members. And, and despite having a complete social, political, cultural affiliation with the tribe, linguistic and all these sorts of connections, none of that would factor in under ICWA. So that is one reason why ICWA is race-based. Another kind of, as, as uh, one of the lawyers put it in the oral argument, the smoking gun here is the race-based placement preferences that ICWA imposes. So under ICWA, a child who is deemed Indian must be adopted in accordance with certain preferences, uh, first with members of the family, which nobody has any objection to, and then secondly with members of the child's tribe. But then thirdly, if none of those are available, with other Indian families, regardless of tribe, which means that a child who is of Inuit heritage has to be placed with a Penobscot or Seminole family rather than with a white, black, Asian, or Hispanic family. And this is a, a real detriment to these children because there's such a shortage of native adoptive or native foster homes. Uh, for example, Los Angeles County, with its population of some 10 million people, has only a single licensed uh, native foster mother in the entire county. So there's a huge shortage of, of available homes that, that satisfy the requirements of ICWA. But the fact that ICWA requires that children be categorized not by tribe by tribe, but as Indian versus non-Indian means that the statute is predicated on a, a sort of generic Indian category. And that's a racial classification, not the kind of tribal political affiliation that the Mankari case contemplated. Elizabeth, what is the argument uh, for why this uh, is not, in fact, a racial classification and does not trigger uh, the highest scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause? Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that Mr. Sandefur um, agrees with the core holding of, of Mankari, which is that tribal members uh, are part of a political classification and not a racial classification. I think that's absolutely key here. Um, but there's, I think, sort of two like really key inaccuracies in the account that he just gave. Um, one of them is actually the scope of Mankari's holding. So um, the BIA hiring preference that we was being challenged under Morton v. Mankari had both a blood quantum requirement, um, an Indian blood requirement that was part of that federal um, hiring preference and a requirement that the person also be a member of a tribe in order to qualify for that preference. And the Supreme Court upheld that as um, the work that the tribal membership requirement does is really key to understanding who is being targeted here. And I think it also um, acknowledged that the idea of Native people as a race, you know, that's, that's of course a thing. Of course, that's a racial category. But that tribal membership is both over and under inclusive of that category. There's plenty of people um, who might, you know, identify racially as Indian, but are not eligible for membership in any particular tribe because that tribe has not, as a political entity, made the decision that they should be eligible for membership. 
And second, there are people who are enrolled members of a tribe who are not what we would call racially Indian. And I think that's sort of the second inaccuracy that I sort of wanted wanted to um, to flag is that the statute defines Indian children as uh, people who are, um, you know, Indian tribal citizens or uh, the biological children of tribal citizens. And um, tribal citizenship itself can be this broader category. I think that the example that Mr. Sandefur raised involving the Cherokee Nation uh, is actually a great one because um, while that might not have been the case uh, then in the historical example he gave right now, there are plenty of members of the Cherokee Nations, full citizens of that nation, who are the descendant of Black freedmen slaves and who don't have quote unquote Indian blood. Um, in whatever way we're thinking of, and certainly wouldn't be racially identifiable as Indian. But they are protected by this law because they are members of the Cherokee Nation, and because this law recognizes the important interest that that nation has in preserving the next generation of its citizens. So I, you know, the, the law has sort of two ways where folks attack it as being a racial classification instead of a political classification. One is the you know, definition of Indian child. Uh, one thing I think it's important to understand about that is that uh, this really just recognizes a practical necessity in drafting a law that has to do with children. And that's that when people give birth, you know, they don't, you know, it's not like uh, tribal citizens go to a hospital, give birth, and the kid just like pops out with all its paperwork done. Like, no, like you have to actually take the time and engage in the effort of enrolling your children in a tribe. Uh, in fact, a, a good piece of evidence about this um, comes from the Navajo Nation, where uh, the enrollment numbers of that nation actually skyrocketed by a sizable percentage during the COVID-19 pandemic, because a lot of people can like kind of be behind on enrolling their kids, frankly. Like no one wants to, when they're a new parent, like go through that paperwork. Um, but when it became attached to important government um, provisions for services, lots of people showed up, got their paperwork done, and enrolled their kids. And, you know, the ICWA definition of Indian child is written precisely to get at that reality that, that you know, just because your parents haven't filed the paperwork, even though they themselves have made the choice to be tribal citizens and to engage in that, doesn't mean that their kids should be denied that protection. And then finally, on the placement preferences, it's really important to understand that if we are in this political, in this world of Morton v. Mankari, where we are acknowledging that uh, tribal citizens are a political classification, then we are in, you know, not quite rational basis, but what I call Indian scrutiny, which is rationally related to the government's trust obligation and relationship to the Indians. And if we're in that space, then uh, the placement preferences including any other member of an Indian tribe, because it's not just Indians writ large as some racial as a racial category. It's other families that are also themselves enrolled in Indian tribes. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's rational enough to me. I'm from Nambe Pueblo, uh, which is one of 19 different Pueblo nations in New Mexico. And even though we all have separate governments, uh, it's really common for folks to marry into other Pueblos to even gain citizenship there, et cetera. We have a very intermixed culture and um, identity. And so it makes perfect sense to me that if one of my children were to, you know, in, in some horrible circumstance, end up in this system, that placing them with another Pueblo family, you know, one of the neighboring tribes is, that speaks the same language, that's in the same geographic proximity, um, would be a much better way of ensuring that they are able to grow up with ties to their tribal community um, and to their, you know, identity as citizens of our nation, then, you know, disregarding that reality um, in their placement. Tim Sander, for your response to those important points, and, and then tell us how the justices split over this question of whether the law presents a racial or political classification. Justices Gorsuch and Kagan said that uh, this involved a political classification. Justice Gorsuch said that the Morton case seemed to cover it, but other justices were more skeptical, and, and Justice Kavanaugh suggested it might be a harder case because of the third preference. So tell us about that debate. 
Let me start with uh, talking about how ICWA treats people differently based on biological eligibility for citizenship. So for one thing, we should probably start with some misconceptions. There's, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. People assume that ICWA applies on tribal lands, and it, it doesn't. We're talking about children who live off reservation and who are uh, citizens of the United States. You know, I think a lot of people sort of have this assumption in the backs of their minds that Indian people are kind of like foreign people, like they're citizens of some other country. And uh, and I think that that is in the back of people's minds, I guess, because there's reservation land and there's these separate governments and things. And so people have this habit of mind of thinking of them as foreign citizens. But they're not, of course. They've been citizens of the United States since the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. And that means that they're entitled to the same legal protections as citizens of all other uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, protections that ICWA takes away from them. And I think we would all say it's obviously unconstitutional if Congress were to treat, for example, Jewish children differently from non-Jewish children simply because their ancestry entitles them to future citizenship in Israel, for example or who for other uh, similar reasons are entitled to citizenship in some foreign country, Japan, for example. We wouldn't say that that we it's constitutionally acceptable for Congress to treat children whose ancestry is Japanese differently from children whose ancestry is not because they might be citizens of another country someday. Uh, with regard to the power of Congress, the big question really centers around this funny word, plenary. Right. A lot of the debate is, well, Congress has plenary power with respect to legislating with respect to, to Indian tribes. And this question about Congress's trust obligation to the tribes to preserve the tribes as, as entities, as, as collective entities. Now, if the word plenary is a synonym for absolute, supreme, unlimited, uncontrolled power. And it's very obvious, I think, that Congress does not have plenary power over anything whatsoever. We have a, a government of limited powers that is subject to the Constitution. And this came up during the oral argument when uh, Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler uh, tried valiantly to avoid answering this question. And, and he's very skilled at avoid answering the, uh, avoiding answering the justices' questions. And, and so he avoided answering what the limits are on plenary power until finally at the end, Justice Barrett got him to admit that Congress's power in this respect must be limited by the Constitution, including the Equal Protection Clause. And that seems obviously true. I mean, if Congress has the authority and the obligation to preserve the tribes as cultural or collective units, and this power is plenary, without respect to constitutional limitations such as the Equal Protection Clause, then could Congress prohibit a tribal member from uh, surrendering tribal citizenship? or marrying outside the tribe, or leaving tribal lands, or from taking birth control, or from publishing an article in a newspaper encouraging others to leave the tribe. If Congress truly has plenary power and an obligation to preserve the tribes as cultural units without regard to constitutional limits, then the answer to those things has to be yes. And I think it's obvious that the answer to those things is no. The, the word plenary has also been used to describe Congress's power with respect to interstate commerce or with respect to foreign commerce or with respect to the military or with respect to legislating for Washington, D.C. And we obviously would not say that Congress can therefore disregard uh, limitation, constitutional limitations such as the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses in order to, to legislate in those regards. And ICWA does all those things by not only classifying people based on their biological ancestry and subjecting them to less protective rules, rules that, that actually make it so that states cannot protect their safety, but also violating due process. For example, giving tribal courts authority to adjudicate their cases in the absence of personal jurisdiction, which ICWA does. Um, and of course, uh, various other uh, parts of the argument that came up. This is a a complicated case. It took four hours to argue because there are so many different constitutional flaws in question here. Elizabeth, how did you read the justices in their various positions about whether or not this is a racial or a political classification? And if the court were to hold that it were a racial classification, would that, as you suggest at the beginning, call into question much of the foundation of Native American law? Yes, absolutely. So I my um, read of the justices was that were that they uh, did not seem persuaded by the attacks on the definition of Indian child under the statute, um, which which have been uh, already discussed. Um, that it seems 
you know, clear enough that this is tribal members and folks who are eligible for tribal membership. And like, that's an important clause of of this statute. The children have to be eligible for tribal membership and have a parent who is a tribal member, a biological parent who's a tribal member. And um, so, you know, again, this doesn't apply to people who have no ties whatsoever to uh, a tribe or its culture. These are people who are themselves members and have made that choice to be a part of this political entity. Um, I think similarly, you know, Mr. Sanifor just raised the idea of uh, tribal courts and their ability to adjudicate these cases and, and that that might be, you know, without personal jurisdiction um, because folks don't have ties to these forums. Well, you know, of course they do. They have chosen to be members of these tribes and tribal membership and what it means to be a citizen of a tri- tribe can operate um onto various folks, not just when they're on the reservation, but when they're off the reservation. You know, I send in my absentee ballot every single year uh, to vote in tribal elections. And there's various services that also I am eligible for based on the federal government fulfilling its trust responsibility to Indian tribes um, because I'm a citizen of my nation. You know, I can go to Indian Health Service, uh, for example. And and that gets to, um, I think, you know, the, the other question you asked about, you know, what really uh, does it mean to remove this pillar? And I think what's so concerning to Indian country about this case is that um, if this case is used as a way to undermine, you know, the core holding of Mankari, which recognizes that tribal governments are just that, they're governments with citizens, um, and instead say, well, uh, you know, because all of these governments are, are tied to these pre-colonial uh, governments that were, you know, that are Indian governments. Uh, therefore, it's just always a proxy for race. That could be used as a tool to attack and undo um, all of the other things that the federal government does to support tribes and tribal sovereignty. And unfortunately, you know, some of the examples that that Mr. Sandefur raised of, you know, sort of bad things that the government maybe could do in a, in a parade of horribles under this broad plenary power to Native people, like, it's done a whole bunch of really bad things already. And unfortunately, justified all of that stuff under this very broad reading of plenary power. Um, I, I don't think that anyone is, uh, you know, arguing precisely what he, what he was saying, which is that it's totally unchecked by the Equal Protection Clause. I think everyone agrees that the Equal Protection Clause and an application of Indian scrutiny would uh, limit what Congress is able to do now when it's legislating with regards to uh, tribes or tribal members. And my hope is that, you know, maybe uh, an example like, say, the federal boarding school program, which was, you know, created during the height of assimilation to remove ki- um, Indian children from their homes um, and, quote unquote, kill the Indians, save the man to uh, make them, you know, good citizens of the United States um, and, and erase uh, their uh, tribal identities and thereby uh, the future of their tribal nations. I think, unfortunately, if the government were to do something, you know, that horrible uh, today, you know, it would likewise be justified under the broad grant of congressional uh, plenary power that we see within the Constitution. Um, you know, my hope, though, is that if that was challenged, we would look at the test of Indian scrutiny and say, is that rationally related to the federal government's obligation uh, towards the Indians to you know, support tribal sovereignty and to fulfill those treaty promises? And we would say, no, that's exactly the opposite. This is clearly a law intended to further eradicate them. And so that really should not um, survive this unique uh, test that we apply under the Equal Protection Clause when it involves Native nations. Tim Sandifer, Elizabeth Reese says that uh, historically, traditionally, the court has applied what she calls Indian scrutiny to Native American law. And that's a version of rational basis scrutiny that Congress's act has to be rationally related to a legitimate governmental purpose. And she says that applying strict scrutiny and striking down all Native American law on the basis that it's a racial rather than a political classification would indeed call into question much of the foundation of Native American law. What's your response to that? And and how could such a claim be reconciled with the original understanding of the Equal Protection Clause? 
Well, nobody really, nobody argues for that position. Nobody is arguing that strict scrutiny should be applied across the board to all federal Indian law. And in fact, ICWA is really unique in federal Indian law in being triggered by biological eligibility and not being applied on tribal land. So uh, a, a ruling that declared ICWA unconstitutional on those grounds would have no effect on the, the rest of federal Indian laws that are triggered by those sorts of things and are, and are, and are perfectly appropriate. Um, I think it's one thing I think is really interesting about this case, if you listen to the oral argument, is that it's the Brackeen's side of the family, it's the plaintiff's side of the, of the case that is arguing for a, for limited power under the Co- Indian Commerce Clause and saying Congress does not have this unlimited plenary authority. And it's their position that the law under which the Indian boarding school situation occurred was unconstitutional. On the other hand, Deputy Solicitor General Needler was asked about the same question, and he said that his position, the federal government's position, is that the law is creating the Indian boarding school situation is constitutional because that falls within this unlimited plenary power authority. So it's it's kind of an odd thing to hear the argument that what we need is this unlimited plenary power authority because otherwise we run the risk of a situation like the boarding schools when, in fact, the, the roles are actually the opposite of that. And I I do have to take issue with one claim that Professor Reese made when she said that ICWA does not apply to people who lack cultural connections to a tribe. That's just not true. I mean, it's just it, flat, flat out not true. I mean, take the Lexi case in 2016, which involved a, a six-year-old California girl whose last full-blooded Indian ancestor was her great-great-great-great-grandparent, did not speak a tribal language, did not practice native religion, had no cultural connection to the tribe, had never visited tribal lands. She qualifies as Indian under ICWA solely because of her biological ancestry or a child like CJ Jr. Uh, you know, we, Professor Reese said that I was parading out parade, a parade of horribles. I'm talking about actual cases that, that we and others have litigated up to the highest courts of the state. In the CJ Jr. case, a six-year-old Ohio child, born in Ohio, lived his entire life with an Ohio foster family. A tribal court in Phoenix issued an order commanding that he be taken from his foster family and sent to live with strangers on a reservation near Phoenix when he had never even visited Arizona. I'm glad to say that we fought back and, and the Ohio Court of Appeals declared that unconstitutional for lack of personal jurisdiction. But there's cases like the JP and SP case in Alaska where the child wasn't even a tribal a member of the tribe. He was a member of a different tribe that did not have a court of its own. So that tribe asked a different tribe to adjudicate his case. And it said, okay, it decided his case and ordered him sent to New Mexico and hasn't been heard from since. In case after case after case, children are deemed Indian under ICWA and treated to the, subjected to these less protective rules, rules that deprive them of legal protections against abuse and harm based on their biological ancestry, sometimes frequently, unfortunately, resulting in the preventable murder of Indian children, the Declan Stewart case, the Lauren Whiteshield case, the Anthony Renova case. These are cases where children were known to be in dangerous households and the state wanted to protect them and was prevented from doing so because ICWA imposes these special rules such as the the active efforts rule that forces states to return abused Indian children to abusive homes which often results in their death, something that would not happen if the child were white or any other race. So ICWA takes away from a distinct class of children legal protections necessary for their security, and it does so exclusively based on their race. In fact, BIA regulations and state court decisions prohibit courts from considering whether the child has a cultural, political, or social connection with the tribe when deciding whether to apply ICWA. Only biology counts. And for that reason, it crosses the line and does not fall within the Mankari rule. It crosses the line and becomes a racial discrimination. Elizabeth, Reese, your response to those points, including uh, the raising of the Indian Commerce Clause argument, you have said in commentary about this case that if the court strikes down the law under Article I of the Constitution, which gives Congress ultimate governing authority, and finds that Congress overstepped the broad authority granted to it by the Indian Commerce Clause, it would open up the door for every federal law concerning Native people and nations to be challenged. So first, my response, I think I I really want to point out that I, um, you know, have not suggested that cultural ties or or, um, a certain blood quantum is what should be um, required in order to trigger the application of ICWA, that, you know, what 
I'm saying and what the law says is that this is about tribal membership, which is a political designation and a political choice. And that, you know, examples like the child, like Lexi, who is, you know, as Mr. Sandefur raised, like, you know, a small amount of blood, he said, like, just her, you know, her last full-blooded ancestor. That's not the point. The point is that her sovereign nation decided that she is a citizen and or eligible to be a citizen and that her biological father um, made a choice to maintain his ties as a citizenship with a nation. I think if, you know, we are in a harder space, if instead we are playing these games around like blood, quantum and race and stuff like that, but that is not what's at issue in this case. Um, you know, and again, that was already sort of, a, a, you know, parts involving that were affirmed in Mankari. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, arguments like that um, just sort of like undercut the, the again, acknowledgement that this is about, uh, political identity and what it means to be a citizen. Not, and that's not something that's about skin color. And it's not something that is about your cultural ties always. It is about a political identity. And if you were going to vote, if you are going to be a part of that tribe. I also think that, you know, I want to point out a lot of these, you know, critiques about the Indian Child Welfare Act and specifically how it operates and whether or not it makes sense. I think the justices also were really quick to point out that these aren't criticisms that have to do with whether or not this law is constitutional. These are about whether or not it's good policy and that that is sort of better directed to the U.S. Congress. You know, I, I would hope to, you know, for example, you know, on the, the scope of uh, whether or not this definition should apply to the non-biological, the, you know, adopted children of tribal members. I think tribes would love if that was expanded to that. And if Mr. Sanifor wants to join, you know, tribal advocates and advocating for that expansion of ICWA um, to be more fair to uh, tribal adopted children, I think that, you know, that would be welcome. But I think it's, it's unfair to say that ICWA is not um, a protective statute. Uh, it has done you know, incredible work to making sure that removing a child from from their parents, um, from their family, from their uh, tribal community is really something that is only a last resort. And if it's at all possible to avoid that, then that is the best thing to do. I think it's really telling that all of the medical experts, all of the child psychology experts, all of the child welfare uh, experts that have submitted amicus briefs in this case are all on one side, and that's the that side of this law. And the idea that this law is really the gold standard when it comes to treating a child like a whole person, um, including this key identity that they have as a tribal citizen, um, and protecting that. Uh, the other reason why I think folks think of it as such a gold standard is precisely because of the active efforts provision that Mr. Sandefur raised. Um, the active efforts provision often makes sure, you know, first that they, uh, the folks who are involved in, in placing an Indian child take every, you know, effort to avoid taking a child away from their family, if at all possible, and, and terminating that parental right um, to notify the tribe so that they can also, you know, be involved in the case if that's appropriate. But also, frankly, a lot of times when kids are taken away, it's because of either, you know, really dire socioeconomic situations that are lingering in the background or, you know, something uh, like drug addiction that might be uh, playing a really tragic role in the life of this family. And a lot of times what that family, what that parent might need is help instead of just taking their kid away. And the active efforts provision is precisely that. It's asking that social service agencies really try to go above and beyond to keeping children with their families before making that determination. Um, and it's really important because, you know, I think as we saw in the era leading up to ICWA, it was a very uh, lax standard for the termination of rights, particularly of Native parents, that led to somewhere between 25 and 35 percent of all Native children being taken away from their homes. And I think that's just a, you know, it's a horrifying uh, statistic that we should still be haunted by. And that, you know, I think is really a good cause for a law like this that does this extra work protecting. Tim Sandefur, let's squarely put on the table the Indian Commerce Clause argument. 
in a colloquy with Justice Barrett, uh, Mr. McGill said the Article I piece, this can't be understood, is within the court's Indian Commerce Clause precedence. And the respondents argue that nothing in Article I, including the Indian Commerce Clause, provides authority for Congress to assert authority over non-commercial areas traditionally reserved to the states, like child placement proceedings, to hold otherwise, they argue, would be to create virtually limitless authority as long as a Native American is involved. Tell us more about the the scope of the Indian Commerce Clause arguments and and how the court- Well, it might be best to start with a case called uh, United States versus Morrison, which is about 20 years old now. And in that case, Congress had passed a law called the Violence Against Women Act that uh, imposed federal penalties for violent crimes against women. And, And where does it get the constitutional authority to do that? That's, of course, not and there's nothing in the Constitution that refers to such a subject. And Congress said, answered, well, it was it's a commerce clause thing. You know, interstate commerce is affected by uh, violence against women. Of course, the problem with that argument is that interstate commerce is affected in some way or another by absolutely everything in the world. And so you can't go, you can't use that path without giving Congress just unlimited authority to do whatever it wants to. And so the Supreme Court struck down the Violence Against Women Act in in Morrison. And so the argument here is something very similar. Questions about adoption and foster care and child safety are matters of state law and traditionally have been, and there's nothing in the Constitution that gives Congress that power. And so Congress points to the Indian Commerce Clause. Now, there are some who have argued, some law professors who have argued that the Indian Commerce power is different from the interstate commerce power, that it's broader. And they've sort of cobbled together this argument um, that sort of relies on a variety of different constitutional provisions, the, the war power, the treaty power, and things like this, in order to try and argue that Congress can do more things under its Indian commerce power than it can do under the interstate commerce power. That, that really doesn't work very well for a number of reasons. One is that the, the Commerce Clause is only one sentence long. It's not even an entire sentence. It's just a, it's a single clause. It uses the word commerce only one time. It says commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So it's, it's using the same commerce word for all those things. And commerce does not ordinarily include things like adoption and child safety matters. And as you said, that came up in the oral argument uh, and, and the attorney for the state of Texas was correct when he just directly flat out said adoption is not commerce, and it's not. And uh, so the effort to try and and read this really expansive interpretation of the Indian commerce power is what the, 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 the defense side has to fall back on. And the problem, there's a number of problems with that. One is that even if ICWA were a treaty, it would still be unconstitutional because even the treaty power has to comply with constitutional limits, including the due process clause. There was a case called Reed versus Covert, in which the Supreme Court said that even under a treaty, Congress cannot force American citizens into a legal system that takes away their due process rights. In that case, it was the spouses of service members serving overseas who were charged with crimes and were put on trial in a military tribunal that lacked due process protections. The court said that's unconstitutional even under the treaty power. Well, ICWA does the same thing. It forces both children and adults out of state court and into tribal courts where the Bill of Rights is not uh, is not binding. So even if ICWA were, were something like that, at the highest level of federal policy, it still violates the Constitution. I, and this is... This is important, again, because what we're talking about is a statute that deprives children of crucial legal protections, not just in court, but in the system itself. So, for instance, Professor Reese mentioned active efforts. Now, what active efforts says, here's what it actually says. When a child is is being taken away from an abusive family situation and put into foster care, the state is required to apply what's called reasonable efforts to restore the family unit, to help, help the parents regain custody. And that's the law in every state. And this is the law, federal law under the Adoption Safe Families Act. But reasonable efforts, that means the, things like making services available to help them, you know, if maybe they need alcohol treatment programs or, or um, uh, anger management programs, or whatever like that. That's already required. Well, that's not required in cases of aggravated circumstances, such as sexual molestation or or other situations where it's obvious that that sending the child back to the household would be really dangerous for the child. So there's an exception for aggravated circumstances. That the rule is different for Indian children. For Indian children, it's active efforts rather than reasonable efforts. And active efforts means we don't exactly know what it means because the statute doesn't say, but it means something more than reasonable. In fact, 10 years ago, the Supreme Court said that it requires the, the it requires you to stimulate the birth parent's desire to be a parent 
end quote, whatever that means. And it's not excused by aggravated circumstances. And that's why, as I said earlier, states are required by the active efforts requirement, not just to to help a family, but to actually send children back to homes known to be abusive, such as in the Josiah Gishi case here in Phoenix, where the the state knew that Josiah was at risk, but it was forced to send him back to his, his neglectful mother who left him alone in the apartment one day. And when she came home, he was dead. Case after case like that, because ICWA deprives these children of protections. I don't want to stop before I point. I, I do. I emphasize an important distinction. I mentioned that ICWA doesn't apply on, on reservation land, and people have this misconception. Another misconception people have is they mix up the concept of Indian child and tribal member. Those are two very different ideas. Tribal membership is a function of tribal law, and tribes have the authority to set those rules however they want. Indian child status under ICWA is a different thing. That's a function of federal law, and therefore has to comply with the Constitution. And you could not pass a law that said, for example, you know, let's say, let's say there was a social club or an organization or something that you had to be a, a member of a certain race to join. That, that's perfectly constitutional. People, want, if private citizens want to discriminate that way, that's, they have the, that authority to do that. But the, then Congress comes along, passes a law, says you have to be a member of that club in order to qualify for this benefit or whatever. That would be unconstitutional because that would transform that private discrimination into a f- pr- public discrimination. Well, in this situation, tribes can set whatever criteria they want, but and that's that's tribal membership. But Indian child status is different. When that comes in, then constitutional limitations, including the prohibition on race-based laws, comes into effect. Professor Reese, tell us about your view of the Indian Commerce Clause argument. In a brief, uh, in support of the federal parties, your Stanford colleague, Professor Gregory Oblosky, argues that the Indian Commerce Clause was only one among interrelated powers in the new federal government, but as James Madison observed, it explicitly shed the qualifying language preserving state authority from the Articles of Confederation and relied on this new clause, Commerce, that plaintiffs themselves acknowledged was universally defined as intercourse. Some of the parties in this case argue that the Interstate Commerce Clause and the Indian Commerce Clause should be viewed the same and, and read extremely narrowly, and I, I think you disagree. Tell us why. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, my colleague here at Stanford Law School, Gregory Oblavsky, is really just the foremost expert um, in founding era history as it has to do with Indian affairs. I am not a historian. I I, I do not uh, spend spend my life uh, squirreled away uh, reading. Uh, founding era documents, but Greg does. And Greg has done just incredible unparalleled work in this space to really unpack what this founding era understanding is, you know, if we are in this sort of originalist vein, sort of looking looking to that uh, as as guidance. And uh, based on his research, I think it's in, and you know, that, that I have, you know, read especially <laughs> closely as his colleague, I think it's in, uh, very clear that um, you know, this distinction between the Articles of Confederation that you raised is is really important, that the Articles of Confederation gave broader authority to states to um, engage in the process of making laws uh, regarding Indian affairs and sort of preserving their own interests in this area, and that it was a disaster. That, um, you know, if you keep in mind, you know, during this era, the United States is still, you know, at war with a lot of the Indian tribes. It's still entering into a lot of negotiations. And that when you had states which were empowered to do things more on their own, what what you had was chaos. You had a bunch of um, different government institutions trying to make different deals, different, you know, implement different policies. And so it was really, really important that as a matter of just national security and public, you know, and and uniformity, that the federal government be able to speak with one voice and clearly when it comes to Indian affairs. Um, And that's why there's this uh, change that's made. And there's a lot of contemporary historical evidence um, suggesting that this is what the the founders were thinking when they uh, put the language around Indian commerce into the Constitution. And I I think that that word commerce, you know, like read in the context in which it's, it's also brought up concerning Indian affairs um, is more like intercourse, you know, intercourse with the Indians, because of course, it's not just deals involving commerce. There's a lot of also treaties and, and uh, deals that involve sort of how to handle everything (laughs) that, that will come up when two peoples are fighting over territory and also just 
fighting violently. You know, I think an example that Professor Blavsky has detailed that are sort of more specifically on point was that it was really important to make rules regarding captives, um, and particularly lots of Indian children who were captives and who were seen as part of the key uh, stuff that needed to be sort of negotiated on and sort of Congress needed to make laws sort of governing what these sort of fair rules would be. There is also this, I think, important uh, idea that it's not just the Indian Gomers Clause um, that does this work. Mr. Sandefur said, you know, some folks cobbled together that there's this idea of other clauses that are doing works. Well, like the some folks is the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, the Supreme Court has set precedent for over 100 years now that um, it's not just the Indian Commerce Clause that supports Congress's plenary authority over Indian affairs. Um, It's also a lot of other powers that Congress have that sort of have to do with a lot of the other things that's required when it comes to making deals with the Indians. That's territory, that's property, that's, um, of course, treaties. Um, And that together, those sort of add up to this authority. Uh, and that's been the law of the land for a really long time. I think one of the um, sort of frustratingly, to me at least, sort of cruel ironies about this this case is that you know the federal government, you know, like we've said, has justified has used this broad authority to justify doing a lot of things, and it's sort of like. Only now <laughs> that, uh, you know, since the 1970s that uh, the federal government has really uh, reversed course and decided to actually promote tribal self-determination and tribal sovereignty, like that we're seeing these challenges to whether or not this authority is constitutional. Um, and I think that that's like really telling. And it's also, you know, I think similar to a lot of the challenges to affirmative action that we're seeing right now that are coming from you know, a position of sort of uh, trying to attack these uses of, you know, I don't think this is a racial classification, but of race-like classifications um, in order to uh, sort of alleviate the harms of past discrimination or add protections against further discrimination for underrepresented minorities in this this, um, country and not those times earlier. And I think that's you know, as that can, that can be very frustrating. You know, I, you know, I wish I had a time machine and I could go back in time and you know give tribes far more power and sovereignty um, that is you know further respected by the Supreme Court and you know put in whatever clauses of the U.S. Constitution that I think would be best support of tribal sovereignty and limiting Congress's power. But I, you know, I don't have that authority. I am bound by the same precedent as everyone else is, and. This is also just sort of revealing with how much is really at stake that, you know, we have built an entire house of um, tribal sovereignty and federal law around these like foundational ideas, right, that Congress has a unique obligation and authority in Indian affairs, and that also uh, Native nations are nations with uh, whose membership is a political classification. Um, And to revisit that Um, now would be just so disruptive and so harmful to everything that's been built. I think we have time to put just one last constitutional argument on the table, and that's the anti-commandeering argument of the 10th Amendment. Uh, Justice Barrett and other justices raised questions about whether provisions of the law violate the 10th Amendment. Justice Barrett was skeptical that the provisions requiring states to maintain records about the placement of Native American children commandeers the state. She was more concerned about the requirement that the states have to make active efforts to avoid breakup of Native American families. And other justices took different positions. Uh, Tim Sandifer, tell us about whether or not you feel that ICWA violates the Tenth Amendment's anti-commandeering doctrine, and why? It does, and this is, I think, a real, really interesting uh, part of this case for those of us who are really fascinated by constitutional law. Um, remember that, that the co- anti-commandeering rule says that Congress can that states are required to obey federal law, but but Congress can't force them to implement federal law, even when using the Commerce Clause. So even if we accept that ICWA is a an otherwise valid use of the Indian Commerce Clause, nevertheless, the anti-commandeering rule would still apply. And so ICWA does force states to enforce federal law. In fact, ICWA is unique in being, I believe, the only federal law on the books that is exclusively enforced by state officials. It's not enforced by, you don't, you don't see the FBI out there enforcing uh, ICWA. It's, it's almost always enforced 
by state officials because they're required to, and they're required to in two different ways. One is the executive branches of the state are required to, of the states are required to enforce ICWA through things like the active efforts provision. They're required to engage in active efforts uh, in which is to say they're required to return abused Indian children to abusive homes uh, and to provide the various services that whatever those might be that satisfy the active efforts requirements. That, that pretty obviously violates the anti-commandeering rule uh, that, as it was enunciated in cases like Prince versus United States. The second way is a little bit more obscure and more, more fascinating, and that is it commandeers state judiciaries as well. Now, no case has ever addressed whether and how the state judiciaries can be commandeered by Congress. And the re- and it was mentioned very briefly in the Prince case, but the reason why was because uh, it's unique. The, the end of the Constitution, there's a provision that says that state judges are bound by oath to enforce federal statutes. So it, it seems self-contradictory to say that it's even possible to commandeer a state court judge through, through a federal statute, right? It would seem to be nonsensical. But in, the reason for it, the reason why ICWA does violate the rule is because ICWA doesn't force state judges to enforce federal substantive law. It requires state court judges to enforce federal procedural and evidentiary rules when applying their own state laws. So, for example, if, if the child is white or any other race and he's being abused and the state decides to terminate the parental rights of the abusive parent, it does so under the clear and convincing evidence standard. That's the standard that the Supreme Court itself required in a case called Santosky versus Kramer in the 1970s. That's the nationwide standard. And the court said in that case, it has, you have to make it, you can't make a preponderance of the evidence because then it'd be too easy to take kids away from their parents. And you can't make it beyond a reasonable doubt because that would make it too hard and it would make it so that states couldn't protect kids. Well, ICWA imposes that very beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And on top of that, it requires expert witness testimony. And that's, that's a higher standard than even applies in criminal law, where expert witness testimony is not required. And that makes it very difficult, extremely difficult, to terminate the rights of an abusive parent, even if the person wanting to terminate those rights is herself native, which very often happens. We did a case called SS, uh, in which a, a, a native father wanted to terminate the rights of his abusive ex, who was not a native. But ICWA nevertheless applied because the children are Indian children, and that prohibited him from terminating the rights of his his abusive ex-wife. Um, so ICWA very often in, in that situation, that's an example of how it, it actually violates the rights of Native parents themselves to protect their own children. But ICWA imposes this reasonable doubt standard on state courts when state courts are enforcing their own state laws about abuse or about termination of parental rights and that sort of thing. So that's why it commandeers state court judges as well. Like, like I said, this is a, an issue that the Supreme Court has never addressed. It's it's brand new. And I frankly, I'd be kind of surprised if the court gets that far because there's so many other questions to turn on in this case. It's it's such a complicated case. But it is a very interesting uh, issue coming going forward. Elizabeth Adagoris, last word in this wonderful discussion uh, is to you. Tell us about the anti-commandeering argument and why you believe that ICWA does not violate the Tenth Amendment. So I think this is a really tricky issue because um, it gets at uh, both, you know, I think as, as you raised sort of the difference between substantive and procedural law. But, you know, I think we we recognize that federal law can be both substantive, you know, as this is, it's a federal law passed by Congress can be either both substantive and procedural and that there's, you know, procedures uh, that we would use to figure out which one gets applied where. Uh, for those of you who've gone to law school, I think there's parts of your brain that are ringing eerie, um, as it absolutely should. Um, and so I think those are actually, you know, fairly straightforward and, and, and easy, you know, acknowledgments that this is a thing that the federal government can do. It can pass sub, um, procedural laws. But the other thing that um, I think is 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 tricky about this is that it gets at, you know, how unique ICWA is as a statute. You know, I, I as, as I've alluded to, you know, this really is, does get at some of the pillars of federal Indian law. And ICWA actually is not that unique of a statute when it comes to things like the definition of Indian child and the idea that tribal membership should trigger the application of a statute. Um, there are other places within federal law that would sort of immediately be called into question, um, including, you know, criminal jurisdiction in Indian country, the definition of that, um, 
not only uses ties with a tribe, but also presumably this idea of Indian blood. Um, you know, that would, of course, be called into question um, if the tribes lost this case. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, the very hiring preference that was upheld in Wharton v. Mankari, which involved um, Indian blood in addition to tribal membership. Um, and so I think if this if this core, you know, tribal membership uh, statute goes down as, as a racial classification, it'll it'll drag everything with it. But uh, the ways in which ICWA is unique is, um, you know, as Mr. Sand, of course, said, is that it applies within um, the state system and within state courts. Uh, what that means, though, is that, you know, one way to look at this um, and a huge portion of, of the of the statute is um, that it's just preemption. Right. You know, we we, we don't say that state uh, courts are being commandeered when they are forced to comply with federal law under the supremacy clause. Like that's a very easy case that they have just been, uh, you know, preempted. Um, in the application of state law and instead have to follow federal law. And I think that's the easiest way to describe the majority of ICWA and what's going on here. Uh, the stuff that's trickier is, you know, things like the active efforts provision and whether or not that is, you know, going uh, beyond in what it's requiring of state officials. Um, I think that's the sort of core of the commandeering question. I think that, you know, it's, you know, on, on one side of the precedent that, you know, I know Mr. Sanafore thinks the other is of, of Prince and sort of what the, the core idea of commandeering versus just complying with the law um, and under preemption looks like. Um, but, you know, since also this, this act of efforts has been raised uh, several times, you know, I, I think, you know, it's important that the federal government has also issued, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has issued guidelines uh, that are, you know, regula regulations and guidelines that actually uh, explain this statute and and what's really required and you know I, I think a lot you know again a lot of this this is a policy issue this is not um, the core of whether or not this law is con is constitutional um, but that you know the active efforts I'm sorry I'm reading from the guidelines from 2016 um, it's that ICWA requires uh, the use of active efforts to provide remedial services and rehabilitative programs designed to pre prevent the breakup of the Indian family. Though it doesn't define active efforts, um, it reflects Congress's recognition of a particular history of treatment of Indian children and families. And sort of it acknowledges also that this idea of taking these active efforts to really protect the core of the family, like that is the gold standard. This, this you know, the phrase gold standard is in this regulation. And I think that even, you know, even if uh, this part of the law were to be struck down, you know, specifically these active efforts provision under the anti-commandeering arguments, you know, or even if the whole law was struck down, what you would see is a bunch of states passing their own ICWAs because it has been, you know, acknowledged that this is, you know, a law that does an incredible amount of good and it is the gold standard when it comes to protecting Indian children. You know, I think if you know, the, a lot of this rhetoric about, you know, the folks here who are being wronged are the Native children, you know, like, I think that what's really telling is that if that were the case, then all of these kids would, who have been adopted out of which, you know, we know there are many because we think, think of it as like a lost generation of children who were taken, you know, they would be sort of lining up to say, you know, oh, I'm so glad, <laughs> you know, that I was taken away from my family and community and raised with this other family. But that's not what they're saying. And what you see from the amicus brief submitted by Indian adoptees is that uh, that it absolutely is a taking from them, that they will never get back um, once they are removed from their community, removed from their tribe, uh, removed from their family. And that laws like ICWA um, are what keeps that from being an irreparable damage that you can do to a child. Thank you so much, Timothy Sandifer and Elizabeth Hidalgo-Reese for a thoughtful, civil, and extremely illuminating discussion of the Brakin case. Uh, it has important implications and you've helped us understand them in all of their dimensions. Tim Sandifer, Elizabeth Reese, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Good luck. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell, Kelsang Dolma, Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to With the People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and civil 
debate. And always remember the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member or give a donation of any amount at constitutioncenter.org. Dear We the People friends, it's the Thanksgiving season and all of us at the NCC are so grateful to you for your engagement with our wonderful mission of lifelong education about the Constitution. Thank you for being part of it and happy Thanksgiving. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.